Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Will. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. To drop John F. Kennedy Jr. into history, he's born in 1960, and it is a crazy year. Togo, Cote d'Ivoire, Chad, Benin, a whole bunch of countries gained their independence. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, is established. The United States sends its first set of troops to Vietnam. The first anime drops in Japan. The lunch counter sit-ins happen. The Food and Drug Administration announces that they approve birth control. And the first contraceptive pill comes out. Uh, September 30th, the animated sitcom The Flintstones airs for the first time. Sammy Davis Jr. breaks another barrier and marries Swedish actress Mae Britt. Wow, lots of interesting stuff happening. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. We're so glad to have you for another amazing episode. How are you doing, Al? You know, I'm doing good. Um, I think that as we've been going forward... And just doing those what's happening in each year. It's just reminded me that every year seems to be on fire. Like every year has something crazy going on, something earth shattering yeah. going on. Do you agree? Yeah, totally. I, I think, you know, we like to think that there were years where they were really good years because nothing insanely crazy happened. But when you take a closer look, there's always something kind of crazy happened. But there's also a lot of good that happens. Like, you know, the Flintstones premiering and capturing the imaginations of many children on, all around the world, you know? So. Yeah. Yep. Totally. So what are you drinking tonight? So I am drinking coffee, actually. I'm drinking um, Abalona Coffee Company. And I mentioned this coffee, I think, in last episode. You did. Um, but I... I actually know the name now. I have the bag in front of me. It's um, this organic morning blend. And it's a really like kind of just smooth coffee. And um, I do a pour over. And it started by this group of friends in Topanga Canyon. And I just love their story about how it was just a group of friends like, you know, sitting around a campfire in Topanga Canyon, a really like kind of spiritual hippie vibe um so yeah i really like it and i have some oat milk with it too if you mention them a third time you have to send them an invoice (laughs) (laughs) sponsor us please um i'm drinking corona extra my second one you know the last time i just had some tea and you know i was just feeling it i was i was feeling a beer tonight it's friday i'm feeling it awesome well, we're hoping that you are enjoying your own cocktail or coffee or whatever it is while you listen to this episode. Today, we're going to be diving into the lives and deaths and legacies of John F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife, Carolyn Bissett Kennedy. Yes, and let's just hop right in. So John's early life, John was born at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital on November 25th, 1960. Two weeks after his father became the president-elect of the United States, 
His parents are John Fitzgerald Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. And if you want to know more about them, you're going to have to subscribe to us on Patreon, where we have put up an extra episode all about them. So we all know the story. He's born to the president and the first lady. He's one of the first kids in the White House in a very long time. And he grows up in the White House. uh, And he has an older sister named Caroline. She's a few years older than him. And of course, we all know his father dies in November of 1963. And the funeral is the day of John's third birthday. And everyone just acts like and pretends that Nothing's happened. They're all wearing black and they're all having this party for this little boy. He continues to grow up in the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C. Then he moves to the Upper East Side of Manhattan with his mother. She just wants to get away from the D.C. scene. It has so many memories there for her. And she's from New York. So it makes sense for her that she wants to go back to the city. She's like really big and metropolitan socialite. So that's exactly the case for her to be at the exact right time. His uncle... Robert Kennedy, Bobby, he steps in to be a father figure for John and Caroline, but, you know, he's got his own wife, Ethel, and he's got 10 children. Not only is he trying to, like, step in for these other two kids, but he already has a bunch of responsibilities. So that's causing a bunch of family tension. But that tension is short-lived because Bobby gets murdered in 1968, and basically 1968 was a terrible year. For everyone involved, just like almost every year seems to be. Uh, They lost MLK and Bobby within a couple of months of each other. Um, And because of that, uh, Jackie's shattered. She's pissed. She's like, if they're killing Kennedys, then my kids are next. And so in 1968, she marries her longtime friend, Aristotle Onassis. He's got two adult children, Alexander and Christina. And Aristotle, I want your take on this, Will. He is introduced to Jackie because her sister, Princess Lee Raswell, is dating him, and then they all end up on the same yacht together. Do you think that it was shady of her to steal her sister's man? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think so. It's crazy how these families sort of intertwine, and you'll see this in this episode about how, you know, the Kennedys really are this powerful american kind of royalty and you know they have ties to other royalty like um the cuomos the radzawill <laughs> yeah and the onassis family and just to be clear the onassises they make the kennedy fortune look like a pond like the onassises are in a whole different league of wealth than the kennedys could ever be So this remarriage ends with her losing her Secret Service protection. She moves the family to the Isle of Scorpios, but she's still having the kids attend school in New York. So when she says, like, I'm leaving the U.S. because if they're killing Kennedys, my kids will be next. It's like, you left them there for school still, I thought. But we have to move on because Carolyn is born. It's 1966, January 7th in White Plains, New York. Carolyn Bissett Kennedy is born. Her father, William's a cabinet maker. Her mother, Anne, is a public school administrator. She has two older twin sisters, Lauren, whose name you should remember, and Lisa. Carolyn's parents, William and Anne, divorce when she's eight, and Anne remarries a very prominent orthopedic surgeon named Richard Friedman. Carolyn and her sisters move with their mother to Old Greenwich, Connecticut, which is a mecca for New England wealth. Carolyn grows up Roman Catholic, so the Kennedys are Catholic too, so this makes sense. She started high school at Greenwich High School, but her parents eventually made her transfer to St. Mary's School, which was a private Catholic school because she wasn't being too studious and she was, quote unquote, having too much fun. 
Carolyn is so popular at St. Mary's and she is voted the ultimate beautiful person by her peers in 1983. Wow, what an honor to be voted that. So as the son of the late President John F. Kennedy, uh, John Jr., who people, you know, we're just going to call him John in here because that's really, you know, what people called him and, you know, that's who he was. He wasn't... Junior. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so in 1977, at the age of 16, he kind of makes his first public appearance representing the Kennedy family, which is, you know, a huge kind of pressure. And it's not a super, you know, serious event. It's the groundbreaking in Boston of the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, um, which, you know, is significant because everyone has a presidential library if you're a significant president, at least in my opinion. Um, And during his final two years in high school at Phillips Academy in Hanover, Massachusetts, he starts dating. Oh, shoot. Sorry. (laughs) You're the mass local. I'm. (laughs) So he started dating and these relationships were still pretty private and, you know, He's kind of keeping a low profile because this is before the whole paparazzi craze where, you know, little kids of celebrities like the Kardashians would be photographed or whatever. So when you're a Kennedy, you can basically go wherever you want for college. And the Kennedy has and the Kennedy family has a big connection to Harvard. But John chose to kind of step outside of that family path and attend another Ivy League, Brown University in Rhode Island. And I found this really interesting article by a classmate of his, Rick Moody, who talks about how John was, you know, the immediate hotshot. Like, everyone wanted to talk to him. Everyone was gushing about him. You know, everyone was just like, I need to, like, see him. He's so hot. And, And, you know, there wasn't even, like, initial conversation always about him being the president's son, sometimes people were just like taken aback by him because he was so charming, so charismatic, so handsome. Dude, can you imagine um, and... seeing him playing frisbee in the quad? I've been to Brown. I've seen the campus. Like if I saw him <laughs> on the street, like it would make my year, not just like my day full like year at school. I know. Yeah. He really is a really handsome person. And I think he's one of the most handsome per- people that's ever, you know, come across American history and, you know, the presidential circle. Um, I want to so start anyways, a his... Let's make a running list of like who Will thinks is like at the upper echelon <laughs> of media attractiveness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think John is definitely up there and, you know, so there's this really interesting story, though, about Rick Moody, his classmate, um, who didn't really know him, but he did cross paths when they both auditioned and eventually were casted in the school's play. It's a drama called In the Boom Boom Room, and John is cast, obviously, as a lead, who's the good-looking and diabolical sort of crazy person, and Rick is cast as his drug addict, diabolical sidekick, Ralphie, and... John channels the great method actors Brando, De Niro, and Nicholson. And John would actually refer to Rick only by his character name, Ralphie. You know, like, hey, Ralphie, let's go get coffee, you know? And, like, they would, you know, hang out, which I think is kind of cute. And um, the director, Santina Goodman, made John cut off his unruly curly hair. Because if you haven't seen pictures of this hair, it's, like, really all over the place. 
yeah, it, it's pretty big. And um, and John hosted a cast party at his place on closing night. And, um, you know, he's the star. He's the main character in his own film. And I honestly think he would would have been a really good actor because I think he has the actor in him. Yeah, George Clooney would have been nothing if John John had been allowed to act. And I think mm-hmm. that I think he's an amazing actor and I think he really wanted to do that, but I think it was like the external pressure of his mom, his older sister being like, What are you doing? Right. Are you kidding? That's no right. No. Yeah. It's, it's in a time before like Ronald uh-huh. Reagan was president. Ronald Reagan was an actor and then became president. Like there's no Arnold Schwarzenegger to look up to, who fun fact made right. into the Kennedy family too. But yeah, John would have been an amazing actor. And I think that if he had been born yeah. maybe just a little bit later, like another Kennedy generation down, it could have been his best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And during his brown years, he dated Christina Hogg and Sally Monroe. I didn't really find anything like too interesting on them. Um, I don't know if you know anything. Um, I actually saw an article that specifically said like, John dated girls who would never kiss and tell, which is why you'd never seen an article from Christina or Monroe. Mm, interesting my night with jfk or anything yeah smart side note remember when emma watson went to brown and like that was a really big deal did she graduate i think so yeah i remember she she went on the ellen show and she said that like she didn't like how american guys wore flip-flops and um yeah that was the only thing i remember of that it's so cold yeah like yeah no i don't like that either oh she did graduate. so yeah. oh she did oh good good for her <laughs> the article title says why does emma watson need an armed guard at graduation <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. so a little bit younger than john is carolyn and in 1983 carolyn goes to Boston University um, to study education there. She's dating, you know, actually some notable men. She's dating an Italian clothing heir, Alessandro Benetton and John Cullen, Boston University ice hockey superstar who later makes it really big in the NHL. And she appears on the cover of Boston University's cover or she appears on the cover of Boston University's calendar, The Girls of BU, and she graduates with a degree in early childhood education in 1988. If I had known that, like, Italian fashion heirs and hockey players were going to BU, I would have replied. No one told me that. <laughs> no one told me that either. <laughs> So in June 1983, John graduates with a bachelor's in history from Brown. And after college, his first gig was being the assistant to the New York Commissioner of Business Development. So pretty big deal, especially right after college. And I'm sure the Kennedy name helps him get that job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Al said, there are rumors that he wanted to go into acting, but his mother, Jackie, persuaded him to take on a more serious career. So he enrolls in law school at NYU and kind of, you know, stays on the track of what it's expected of a Kennedy and the son of JFK because, you know, his uncles, his father, you know, lawyers galore and the family of the Kennedys. And it's weird to me, honestly, that he did bad in school. 
like for he got held back junior mm-hmm. year. He transferred schools in second yeah. grade so he wouldn't be held back that year. So why would you send brother to NYU? That doesn't sound fun. Is what I'm saying. It doesn't sound fun if you're like not yeah. in the edu- if like this clearly isn't for you, and then you're forced to go to Brown and NYU, right. where there's people who are like photographic memory there that you just could never compete. Yeah, with. I think he kind of has to set aside his passions, which you know, as we'll explore later with some of his further endeavors, you kind of see that law wasn't really his dream end goal. Um, but anyways, in 1988, at the age of 27, John does kind of step into the national political scene by introducing his uncle, Ted Kennedy, at the Democratic National Convention. People saw his political charisma that was very evident in his father. And two months later, this is really big, John makes People's Magazine as the sexiest man alive. This is a big deal for someone so close to an American president you know, being deemed as sexy by the tabloids. Like, this was kind of, like, unheard of, right? Right. And the magazine cover really ramps up the paparazzis and media hounds chasing after him, you know, heckling him, like, who are you dating? And, you know, really a more, uh, the the media is just more invested in who John Kennedy is, you know, what his love life is like, and et cetera. They also said that this was the best-selling Sexiest Man Alive cover of all time. Yeah, I kind of like, it kind of feels, I think it's kind of because, you know, it's someone who you're not really supposed to kind of think in a way that's kind of like attractive or sexual. Like, you know, a lot of people like to keep the government and Hollywood separate and it's kind of like a meshing of the two, you know, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a little taboo one might say oh my god wait um, but anyways who's that yeah race governor who's that disgraced governor who's in playgirl my god no he was married to um hillary clinton's chief of staff anthony weiner anthony weiner oh yeah. right, right right yeah yeah Yeah. so that's a big taboo of um hotness and politics crossing in 1989 john graduates from law school and becomes an assistant district attorney in manhattan he finally passes the bar exam after failing two times, and he practiced law in a few cases, and was actually pretty successful in winning those cases. Um, a famous quote of his after failing the second time was that he'll take it until he's 95, if that's what it takes to pass, and he knows the media will be covering it. And in 1991, at Palm Beach, Florida County Court, John attends the trial of his cousin, William Kennedy Smith. William Smith um was accused of raping patricia bowman um in florida and there are rumors that john was blackmailed into attending to kind of you know help save uh his cousin you know from being convicted or whatever um and he you know william kennedy smith was eventually acquitted after a 10-day trial Though he has since been accused of sexual assault by two former employees, which is really gross and kind of just further incriminates him. I wonder Um, how good the blackmail was to get him to show up for something that terrible. I know. I'm like, what was the blackmail? I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's kind of creepy. I mean, I read a little bit about this story and I don't want to dwell on it too much. But uh, William Kennedy Smith was, um, he brought like, 
Patricia and like there were some other girls there, I think, to like their beach house in Palm Beach, like the Kennedy Beach House. And, oh. Um, there was another Kennedy there. Um, I can't remember. But anyways, it, it does prove that, you know, in families like this, there's always going to be someone who does something really gross. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the fun relationships John had before he meets Carolyn. First off, Madonna. He met Madonna after one of her concerts for the first time in New York in 1985, but she was still married to Sean Penn. So they're keeping their relationship mostly under wraps, considering that she subsequently like starts getting divorced and they have conflicting schedules. They're not really in the same place at the same time enough to have a relationship together. However, at a party roasted, roasted, uh, however, at a party hosted by Robert De Niro, John gets introduced to Sean Penn, who doesn't even shake his hand. Penn tells John, I know who you are, and you owe me an apology. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, no one owes you an apology, Sean. You're a white no. leader. No one owes you anything. But whatever. Um, moving on. John eventually introduces Madonna to his mother, and Madonna signs the guest book as Mrs. Sean Penn, which is a sign to me that they both know the relationship's not going anywhere. But right. Jackie Kennedy had really wanted to meet her because she was like, who is this girl uh-huh. using all this Catholic iconography in her videos? Because, <laughs> of course, they come from such a huge, oh, staunchly gosh. Catholic fam- family and stuff, and like Madonna's the answer to Marilyn Monroe, and Marilyn Monroe had already been right. sitting with her husband, so she's like, who's the new girl? Yeah, she's like, yeah, who's the new girl around the block? <laughs> I I can't imagine being married to Madonna. Mm-mm. I don't, I don't I trust her with that fake European accent. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I, just, I, I can't. I can't. I know, and, the, and like the photos of Madonna like flying on EasyJet to Portugal, I'm like, damn. That's what a billionaire looks like? You want me to believe that's what a billionaire looks like? She looks like shit today. She's wearing four different leopard print. Come on. (laughs) She does have impressive arms, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She has more muscle than me, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I know, both of us combined. Yeah. So anyway, his other big relationship. This is a big one. The next one we talk about isn't that big, but this is a big one. Um... Daryl Hannah in the 80s and 90s is that bitch. Period. She is the one that everyone is after, and she's jading John for the longest of anyone before Carolyn. And what stands out to me the most about their relationship is that Daryl's in LA, John's in New York, and John's watching the dog. He's watching the dog. He's waiting for his mother to die because it's right after she got uh, diagnosed with non-Hopkins lymphoma. And... John goes out for a run because John's a big runner. He loves going to the gym. Imagine him doing that every day. So John's out on his daily run with the dog. He loses control of the leash. The dog gets hit by a car and dies. Daryl freaks out. She's pissed. She's like, I gave you one damn thing to do, and it was watch my dog, and you did the opposite of that. It's dead. So he has to get on a flight to L.A. with the cremated remains of the dog to have a funeral with her in L.A., well, he's supposed to be spending time with his terminally ill mother. And that's basically the nail in the coffin of their relationship. They stay together, like, through Jackie dying. Because after that, they go back to New York together. And then, like, she's one of the people coming to pay their respects. But that was a shitty thing of Daryl to do. And that's why they definitely broke up right after that. Um, what do you that's think? so crazy. Crazy, right? That Actresses. is crazy, yeah. 
So another yeah, fun poor thing dog about, too. I know, yeah, poor dog. Dog didn't do anything. Like <laughs> nope. But um, another funny thing about uh, Daryl Hannah, she has so she has a long relationship rap sheet, and Val Kilmer described his worst breakup ever in 2020 is being with Daryl Hannah. And she literally said, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I forgot we dated. I didn't know <laughs> I meant that much to you. I actually forgot we were together. So I'm like, wow. Daryl Hannah is savage. Yeah, she is. And if people can't place Daryl Hannah, cause I feel like she kind of is a thing of the past a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, she was in that show since eight, but you probably know her from kill bill. She played, um l driver i think yeah yeah l driver and she was like the nurse who you know had like the one eye patch um so yeah that's who jfk jr dated (laughs) not to be confused with uh the person who plays oh my god not to be confused with the person who plays the manicurist in legally blonde she looks a lot like that actress but she is not her Oh, Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that you knew that. I love Jennifer Coolidge. I love her. Oh, so funny. Well, John dates one other really notable person before he gets together with Carolyn. And this is Sarah Jessica Parker, who we are all about to see on TV again, whether we like it or not. Um, so when she's <laughs> a young, starting out actress. She is on a break from her relationship with Robert Downey Jr. And she starts going out with JFK. And then she says that she had no idea what real fame was like until then. She is now wow. suddenly always photographed by the paparazzi. She can't go to like the newsstand without seeing herself like in it. She even remarks one day that when she dies, the first line of her obituary is going to be JFK's ex dead. Thankfully, Sarah Jessica Parker has carved out her own niche and become more than the person who dated JFK. But wow, that's his effect on people. That's JFK's effect on people. I remember Sarah Jessica Parker. She was on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen. And um, someone asked her about dating JFK Jr. And she said that um, his hair was amazing. And that (laughs) putting her fingers through his hair, it was like a paintbrush. And yeah. You know, it's kind of very, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, back to Carolyn, who's been living her own life. After Carolyn graduates from BU, she starts a career doing public relations for a nightclub company out of the Avalon, which if you're a Boston local like me, you will recognize as the location of today's House of Blues on Lansdowne Street. Oh. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, it, I found it like deep in a documentary. And so at this time, she's more into leather. You know, she's less color shy. She's wearing brighter things. Her hair is a dark blonde, not the super perfect blonde we remember her with. Um, and then one day she comes into work at the Avalon and she tells her friends that a Calvin Klein scout stopped her on Newbury Street and gave her a card to get a job to work at their Boston store. So she's working at their Chestnut Hill location, which is not in Boston, period, and their Newbury Street mm-hmm. store, which is in Boston, period. And um, then she's just working her way up in there. And in 1988, she gets asked to join the Calvin Klein PR department in New York City. And part of her job is dressing socialites and celebrities, then managing their backstage runway shows. 
And she's also the director of publicity for the flagship store. So she is the face of Calvin Klein at this time, if you can imagine. Right. And she worked with Michael Bergen, who was a top male model at the time, who became famous for his tone physique and being shirtless in Calvin Klein underwear. He, you know, he was the one plastered on the billboards and um, Carolyn helped him become a star. And the two fell deeply and passionately in love. And don't worry, everyone. Michael Bergen comes back later because he is an important part of this story. But someone's got to die first. It's fatal fortune. Someone has to die first. So in November 1993, John's mother, Jackie Onassis, was thrown from a horse during a hunting excursion. From this accident, she discovers a swollen lymph node in her thigh. She soon begins to develop stomach pain and swollen lymph nodes in her neck. And in January 1994, she's diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. After months of chemotherapy and hospital visits, Jackie is released from the hospital on May 18, 1994. She returns home to her New York City Fifth Avenue apartment. She dies the next day with her family by her side, including her children John and Caroline. After Jackie's death, the Kennedy legacy weighs even heavier on John's shoulders, and he ends his five-and-a-half-year relationship with Daryl Hannah. Something so crazy about this for me is that the morning after she dies, John John goes downstairs to like tell the media because, of course, everyone's waiting. And he says, yeah. you know, like my mother died surrounded by her family, her friends and her books. And when he says her books, I want to cry every single time. I'm like, I want to go with my book. Fuck. <laughs> ah! So that's how I feel about what <laughs> she gives when he goes downstairs. Um. Oh, so. John and Carolyn have got to meet. We've been here for a good 35 minutes. John and Carolyn have got to meet. Mm -hmm. So one source I found said that John and Carolyn didn't meet until 1992. But another source says that they dated for a little bit in 1990 while he was on a break from his relationship with Daryl. So make of that what you will. I don't, I don't want to dig further on it. Doesn't matter. Even while John is dating around, he's got Carolyn in the back of his mind. And because she's the face of Calvin Klein, like she sees people all the time. She is the face of Calvin Klein for New Yorkers. So if he needs to get a new suit, she's the one that's going to hook that up for free. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. moral is they either meet at a charity event or they meet at Calvin's. But from that day onward, her life's crazy. The paps smell blood and they are swarming. Just like they were swarming for Peter Townsend and Margaret. It's very much that kind of situation. Like people are just lined up, mm -hmm. like waiting outside his Tribeca apartment or something. Yeah. Or like so, Diana and Charles, you know. Yeah. Like any, like Tristan and Isolde or Romeo and Juliet back in the day. It's something like <laughs> that. So. Boom. Oh, what? Never mind. Okay. Their tragic end. I want to say that I want to flip the sentences. That's what I was confused. Oh, okay. Pardon me, Hedbert. Carolyn quickly moves in with John, and they have just as many fights as they are passionate about how they love each other, and their tragic end is coming up right after the break. So, guys, we have something really special to bring you today. We have our first interview with the owner and operator of KBK Clothing underscore on Instagram, Annie Davey. Would you like to introduce yourself? 
Hi, I'm Annie Davy. Nice to be here. This is uh, my first podcast that I've ever done, so um, I hope it goes well. Um, I hope I can answer all your questions as best I can, and um, yeah, um, uh, uh, let's do it. Amazing. So our first question is, we would like to know what is your fashion story and how did you first get into minimalism? What's my fashion story? Listen, I've, I've always loved clothes. Um, I used to be a flight attendant and spent many summers in Paris, Brussels, London. So I was always, I would say, on trend with the latest fashions. Um, but it's only in the last five years that I think I've put together like a, a, a basic standard wardrobe. And 90% of all my purchases, they're from secondhand clothing stores, either online or there's this little um, thrift shop where I live um, that I buy secondhand stuff. And it's an incredible what I've, I've found there. Gucci, Chanel, Coach, Christian Louboutin, um, all kinds of stuff. But um, yes, I, w- I would say it's only like in the, in the past five years that I've really sort of put together a basic wardrobe, like the, 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 the must-haves. And obviously CBK has always been my uh, huge fashion influence. Um, I, I think what I, I, I like the most about it is, first of all, I love black. I mean, yep. who, who doesn't look good in black? Um, <laughs> and um, no, I've just, I've always, always loved her style. How long have you been inspired by Carolyn herself? When did you first see her in a magazine or see a look that she was wearing and say, I need to dress like that too? Um, I, listen, I, you know what? I, I, I think it was back when John introduced Carolyn to the world as his wife for the first time. John, she came out the, the, the front door very reluctantly yeah. on, uh, from the loft on Moore Street. She had the beige Prada skirt, the boots, the black bag. And I just remember thinking, wow, she looks incredible. Um, there was also the picture of uh, the, the, the wedding dress that had a huge yes. impact on me. I just thought, oh, my God, this, this woman is just she's stunning. Um, and I think it's, it's as if I kind of forgot about her. And I was saying to my husband, you know, when did this, this obsession come back? And I think it was three summers ago, we were up in the country and I just remember obsessing about her. You know, I just spent my days scouring, um, looking on Pinterest and, and, and online because I was, uh, I was late to the game. Like I wasn't on social media. I wasn't on Facebook. I wasn't on, on um, Instagram. So it was just kind of like, um, I, I, I just became obsessed with her. Um, I had no idea what a, a blog or blogger was until I got back to town. I decided to, um, and I just thought I was nuts obsessing over this person who'd been dead for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so here I am on Facebook and I find this Facebook page um, and it's all people who are obsessed with Carolyn. I'm thinking, oh my God, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not so abnormal. Um, and it was people sharing stuff left and right and it was just it was just so nice to um find this these people that shared the same you know the same obsession I guess as I did I I couldn't believe it um so it kind of started from there yeah and you're definitely a leader in that community now like ever since you got that little follower bump well listen here's the thing um which I think different me from other CBK accounts is that I've got the clothes like I find everyone else and there's so many accounts out there and I'm not, you know, putting anybody down, but I'm just saying it's, it's the same old, same old it's pictures that are being rehashed and rehashed over and over and over. Um, And for me, yes, you know, you know, Karen Bassett is, 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 is incredible, you know, woman, but to me it was her fashion. 
So having her clothing to me just kind of sets me over the top of, of all the other accounts, you know, because basically that's what people want. They want the clothes, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, so having the clothes, I just find that kind of sets me apart from the other ones who, again, um, just keep rehashing, uh, you know, photos. And then when a, a new photo came up, the one recently came up, which is like, oh, my God, people just like, oh, my God, a new photo. I can't believe it, you know? So yeah, think, yeah, from that wedding. That was awesome. Yes, oh, you saw that, eh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So having the, the, the clothes definitely, I think, puts me in a, a league of my own, not to say that I'm, I'm, I'm better than anyone else, but just owning the clothes, it's just like, it, it's, it's true. the real McCoy. Yeah. Right. And I also find um, with the followers that they, they want to see the clothes on me, you know, like I've, I've posted them on, on, on a mannequin, but I, 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 I find I get most, more feedback when I put the clothes on. Because you look awesome um, in them. <laughs> oh, well, listen, this is what's incredible is that every piece that I bought fits me um, because I, ha- I also have a Facebook page um, and I would post things that I'd found on eBay, whatever. And this, there was always the same person buying them over and over, but the clothes didn't fit her. She was just kind of mm. buying them to buy them. Whereas in my case, every piece that I own, um, th- they fit, you know, yeah. so I can wear yeah. them. Um, not that I'm going to be wearing the, 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 you know, the long skirts. I don't, I don't have a lifestyle for black tie events and, and yeah. that's mm-hmm. fine. But, um, the, 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 coats I wear, you know, they're, they're, and, and here we are over 20 years later, um, and they're still relevant, you know, you can still wear them. That's what's just incredible about her style. Especially that, uh, tan camel coat you have. So oh, it's, in, it's incredible. Well, that was the second piece I bought, um, the the when I came back to 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 town and I found the um the Facebook page um I just again obsession so I I just started googling CBK CBK anyway I I, the first piece I bought was the um the tan skirt I didn't know anything about Prada I had no idea if it was going to fit or not um and um that's where it kind of started it was it, it was from the 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 Prada skirt and then the second piece I bought was the 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 camel coat yeah and I have never seen um, uh, the, the camel coat for sale online either. In fact, most of the pieces I have, I have yet to see them. No, sorry, there's, there's a few pieces, but um, uh, a lot of the key pieces, like the, the, the green Valentino, I have never seen yeah. for sale. Well, this is a great segue into our next question is, what can you tell us about the world of underground private high-end sellers? How did you find yourself buying Prada in New York? Because I did see that you made a little stories post that you have in your highlights saying, stop asking me where I got everything. Not going to tell you it's in Tribeca. I'll say no more. But if you could elaborate a little bit, we'd love to know. Sure. Well, like I said, it started with the the, the, the Prada skirt. Um, and then a few months later, um, I see the same. I, I, I see the, the 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 camel coat, um, but I don't make the the link that it's the same seller. So I buy the camel coat, and I think we just kind of started up a conversation about the clothing. Um, and she says, "Are you interested in 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 other items? You know, relating to uh, I guess CBK, but without even without saying." Um, because what happened was, I, I can't remember how the story went, but we, we kind of started up a conversation. Um, and then she says, well, I have some more pieces. Are you interested? And I said, oh, my gosh, of course. So then she pulled out the shorter uh, Prada Camel coat, which honestly, uh, it was not one of my favorite pieces. But I remember saying, so I, I, I guessing before that, she 
made the she yeah she did say she said that she had bought the clothes from an ex-staffer at george magazine um oh wow. but it was only it was only after i paid her that she came out with that story so she wasn't trying to make a sale yeah so she came so then she came and she um started talking about the short pratter coat and i said well if you're telling me that it used to belong to carolyn i'll buy it and then she kind of <laughs> abruptly said yeah um i'm not saying that i can't prove it i don't know for sure so then she pulls out she says i think i have she says i've got the um the, the green valentino and i'm like oh my god the mother load you know it's just like mm-hmm. and so then she says um she says this coat she said i've got the the she doesn't say the green valentino she says, i've got the green valentino um from the, the the fall winter collection 1996 and she says this coat is extremely rare which makes me believe that it did belong to to yeah. carolyn um so the conversation just kind of went from there so i, I think i bought some coats and then there was there was the, I, there was almost like about a year in between that we sort of got back into contact. And then she started feeling really comfortable about saying that the clothes came from the ex staffer. Um, again, she she wasn't trying to make a sale because I'd, I'd already paid her for the clothing. Um, but then she just she elaborated like the story the, the 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 story behind the clothes is a huge story within itself. Um, and I don't want to mention names because I don't want to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. But she said that, um, uh, like going into detail, saying that the the ex staffer used to go out with her ex boyfriend, and that is how that they they, oh. they made the link. Oh, but the story gets even more sorted. Um, her ex boyfriend worked in the same financial office as Lauren. So she oh my said, gosh! Yeah. Oh no, no, it's crazy. And and she said that Carolyn would often come into the uh, would come into the office, but people didn't know who she was. Um, <laughs> and again, she didn't have to tell me this backstory, um, but she did, you know. And and it wasn't. It's almost like she wanted to get it off her chest. What happened was I didn't realize there were so many pieces because when when I when she first started talking about the staffer, she said that Carolyn had gifted the clothes to the staffer and which is very plausible and the first my first question was was it Rosemary Terenzio because that was yeah very well documented and she said no without even you know so I I didn't second guess her story but then um when I started buying more and more like here we are like I think I have 27 pieces so she's like holy heck how could Carolyn have (laughs) gifted somebody 27 pieces Mm -hmm. um so I just kept sort of pushing and pushing without pushing too hard finally she gave me the name of the seller uh the, the ex-staffer and I, I won't say who this person is honestly do, do i believe her do i not um what i can say is and, and a lot of people have said well you know d- does the family know that uh, this ex-staffer has been selling the clothes you know maybe perhaps the family came took what they wanted and said right. you know what do do whoever's packing the clothes do what you want with the rest um also, I'm elaborating even more. I contacted major newspapers in New York City, uh, the Fit Museum. Again, I won't mention names that were um, incredibly interested in my story. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the woman from New York City, I finally gave her the name of my seller. Um, and she was emailing me at four or five o'clock in the morning, just like she couldn't get enough of the story. Like, this is insane. And then she just went cold. Uh, didn't respond to my emails. Uh, the same thing with the Fit Museum. 
um, I got the name from the, the woman from the Fit Museum from the, uh, the documentaries on Carolyn. And the same thing, Annie, what would you like to do with these clothes? There's going to be, a, because I think with the Fit Museum, it's booked like two years in advance. Yeah. But she, she wanted to see the clothes, you know, and she, she, she believed the story. Uh, and then um, she just went cold. Uh, didn't respond to the emails uh, I have my theories but I'm not going to say what they are now <laughs> but because finally after two years the um, the seller gave me the name of the ex-staffer and I contacted the person and this person denied it um, oh yeah oh wow so that was that was nothing but I'm thinking I think the person would deny the story because who wants to be known as selling Carolyn's clothing? Where did this person get the clothing from? Was it kosher? Right. Uh, were yeah. they taken during the time that the, the plane crashed and there was people going in and out of the, the, the loft, which was, you know, documented. Um, and I don't know. I don't think I want to be known as selling CBK's clothing. Um, so, Me you know, what? <laughs> yeah. It, so it, it, as far as the, the, the the background story goes on the clothes, whether they belong to her or not. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. But for someone to have 27 pieces of her clothing and they're all her size, you know, like she would have had to, um, I don't know, like collect all these pieces and, and, and put the whole thing together. And again, I'm repeating myself, but I had, I'd already paid her for the clothes. So she didn't have to tell me the backstory, um, yeah. but she did. She did. Yeah. Mm. It's so interesting that you mentioned the George Stafford because I had totally been thinking, oh, it must be Rosemary because there's a part in her book right at the very end where it says that Caroline Kennedy had asked her to pack up the closet. Right. It's yeah. Um, and she, mm. she, she mentions that she'd given away, um, I think, uh, hats that belonged to JFK and, and ties yeah. to, to, to whatever. But, you know, maybe the, the, the family said they, they took what they wanted and they, they said to Rosemary, you know, do what you want with the rest. So she did. So maybe she gave some to an ex-staffer, which in turn this ex-staffer um, sold them, which is very plausible. You know, there, there's, there's, uh, uh, Key pieces like the, um, the, the there's the, 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 I don't know if you know the, the fur shawl, the Gucci fur shawl. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I okay, saw that. So, so I'm thinking um, if my seller, like how would she have known that that shawl was Gucci? Do you know what I mean? Like to, to, if she wanted to, let's just say she's, she's nuts and she wanted to replicate CBK's um, whole wardrobe. How would she know to go get that, that it was Gucci, you know? Yeah. Um, just sort of key pieces what else was there um i don't know just it, it just the fact that she you know amassed this collection of clothing that were all her size tells me this backstory that i didn't need to know um because i'd, I'd already paid her um why would she you know yeah wow that's yeah. that's pretty fascinating how there's that sort of mystery that involves with your story about obtaining these clothing and you know there's all these coincidences that it seems to you know uh, absolutely and 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 also the fact that i contacted uh, you know this major newspaper in new york city and and the, the the person responded immediately she she wanted wanted my story um so as soon as i gave her the seller's name um she went cold and the same thing with the the, the fit museum is so, this like a noted seller or something uh, no, absolutely not. No, no. 
but I, I've uh, again, I, I have my theories, but I, I won't say what they are. Yeah. But um, <laughs> no worries. They, com- they completely went cold, and also I contacted. Um, I don't think I did it uh, very seriously, but I, I think I contacted Vogue magazine and and possibly Vanity Fair because I mean they'd done so many articles on Carolyn, and if you mm. see my stories, that article on on the lost or stolen clothing, you know, someone was seen around Tribeca wearing CBK's clothing or, or John's watch. Um, you wow! Know, so you know maybe it is that that somebody you know during the plane crash and everyone congregated on on moore street in their um in their loft that things were taken or the family took what they wanted and say do what you want with the rest you know well that's a perfect segue into our fourth question which is if you had to choose one of these 27 pieces to save in a fire which one would it be (laughs) <laughs> I was thinking as far as clothing pieces go, um, you know what, it would probably be the the, the green Valentino coat. Um, yeah, just because I've never seen it around. It's such an obscure piece of, of her wardrobe. Everything else was black besides the red Prada coat. That was one of the first questions I asked my seller. I said, do you have that red Prada coat? She said, no, I don't. Oh. Nor did she have any of her um, uh like um Monono Blanics or things like that. Yeah. So I would say would be the green Valentino. Absolutely. Yeah. Is as far as and I know people have been like sort of like going after me uh, uh on, on my Instagram account like, you know, uh what the fuck and something's fishy. Well, there, there's nothing fishy. Um I I've told my truth. Um I don't know if they belong to her or not. Um I may or may not find out or people saying, you know, why didn't you contact the family that do they know? uh, um, I feel like if you contacted the family, they wouldn't respond. How many people do they get a day asking them questions about their dead relatives? And, and you know what, it's just clothes and and maybe they took the key pieces that they wanted and, and they just don't care. You know, it's kind of like, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll find out one day, maybe I won't, but just the fact that, um, this person from this very well-known um, newspaper in New York City ghosted me, as well as the Fit Museum ghosted me. Mm-hmm. I know there's something going on. You know, my yeah. husband's convinced that why would they do that? <laughs> they went from um, emailing me at four or five o'clock in the morning. The Fit Museum. It was like a, a a long weekend, and what can we do? Can we fit the clothes in? And just like boom, nothing. Is there a current celebrity whose style you think maybe is influenced by Carolyn or are there any other like fashion icons that, you know, you think that Carolyn might've inspired? Um, well, the, the first, the first one that comes to mind is, is Meghan Markle, right? Do you remember when she first oh, yes. came out, she had the beige skirt, she had the black turtleneck, she had the mm, black boots. Right. Um, and then her second wedding dress choice again was very similar yes. to, to, to Carolyn's. So yeah, if, if one one celebrity would come to mind, it would definitely be Meghan Markle. Actually, she was also um, um, quoted on as, as saying that she, her her dream wedding dress was um, Carolyn's. Oh wow! And she made that happen. So yeah, good. no, she did definitely her <laughs> second choice. It was you, you could tell it was totally uh, CBK inspired. Absolutely. So if one of our listeners wanted to emulate Carolyn's style, what are the staple pieces that they would need to obtain to kind of, you know, emulate Carolyn for a day. Okay. So the first thing that, that comes to mind is a black turtleneck. 
And mm-hmm. regardless right. of Carolyn or not, I find that everybody looks incredible in a black turtleneck. Um, yeah, totally agree. Par- part of my uniform as a valet is a black turtleneck. So I'm like, oh, yes, I hit the jackpot. <laughs> I must have about 20 of them. And as, as far as places to buy them, uh, Zara has an incredible collection of good, decent, uh, cheap uh, turtlenecks. Jeans, definitely, different kinds, cut styles. But Carolyn was basically the, the flare at the bottom. Yeah, the, uh, it says that she wore the 517s Levi's. I heard that, yes. Yeah, see, I didn't know that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, of course, we were just talking about the, the a camel, uh, camel-colored coat is an absolute mm. must. Um, you also need a, a, a classic black cut wool coat. Uh, I would say classic uh, black trench coat. Um, oh, black boots. You're definitely black boots. Tall ones, short mm-hmm. ones. Um, she also was known for her uh, Prada wedge, um, uh, wedge heel boots, the suede ones. And you can still buy them today. You can either find them online, uh, used, or I think they might even still make them new Prada um penny loafers for sure carolyn i found carolyn's um taste was very preppy yeah you know and 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 there's a whole conversation as to you know when she became mrs jfk did her 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 style change and it absolutely did you know um but i i found her very preppy of course her, her her sunglasses the selena optics or something similar um, a black handbag. She she started off with the Prada patent leather ones, and then she she switched over to the, to to the Birkins. Mm-hmm. Um, her Egyptian muscoil, which is funny because I was just checking out um, on eBay earlier that, that they still sell it. Have you ever smelled it? She no, she was known for her Egyptian muscoil. It smells incredible. <laughs> it smells. No, like, I'll have to get some. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's the same woman. I think her name is Charlotte. Um, but it, it has this incredible smell to it, like baby fresh, a massive collection of, of sweats and, and, and running shoes, right? For her sort of casual times in, in, in you know, hanging out with JF, Kay in the, in the park or Hannesport. She was a bum. I found a lot of ways, you know, like just kind of like old big sweats and wearing John's clothes, uh, extra yep. large. And of course, if you're going to go out to anything black tie, um, Yohi Yamamoto which I had no idea who he was until I, I you know, started following and, and dissecting Carolyn and her style. Uh, and it's not cheap to find, to, to buy Yohi and no. to use no. clothing. Um, and there's just such a pattern. Everything's black. Everything is black. Yeah. So um, I would definitely say, get yourself some <laughs> Yohi Yamamoto for, um, for cocktails and, and black tie events at night for sure. Well, thank you so much. And we have one final question. What do you think is um, kind of bringing JFK Jr. into this, but what do you think JFK Jr. and Carolyn's legacy is in fashion? Because, you know, they were just such an iconic couple together. I always found, and and, and I'm sure that most people agree that JFK had zero taste. Um, He was seen wearing fanny packs, baseball (laughs) caps, and often you would see the two of them, you know, like in, in Paris when she's wearing the, um, the Comme des Garçons uh, cape coat, he's got a fanny pack on, running shoes, his baseball cap. Like it's almost like they were, they were mismatched, <laughs> you know. Um, but as far as Karen's legacy go, I, I think it, it's, it'll continue to live on as long as there's people like me and, and so many others out there that keep it alive either on social media or other um, 
and also fashion magazines uh, and, and newspapers, she's continuously in, in, in the headlines, you know, like an article in Vogue magazine recently, um, there was a, a recent article in, in uh, the New York Times, like um, people, I, I think, can't get enough of her. Well, this has been like the most fun Saturday I've had forever. I don't know about <laughs> oh, you guys. Oh, <laughs> thank you for saying that. <laughs> I, I, I listen I, I I could talk about it forever and, and I think since I started the Instagram because Instagram I, I've only been on it for about a year um, so it's just so nice to be with all these people that 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 enjoy her style and I think as long as there's um, people that are out there that continue um, her legacy will live on forever for sure yeah and do you want to tell the people where they can find you online Oh, well, it's um, my, my Instagram account is CBK clothing underscore. Yeah. And I think I started it I've, um, not that long ago, I think back in September, October, but I'm just having fun with it. It's just, it's so nice yeah. to meet all these people um, that, that share the same passion. And there's so many people sending me um, things that they found online. Oh my gosh. I, I, I can't believe how many secondhand clothing um, stores there are vestiaire, uh, heroin. People like, did you see this? Did you see that? Uh, it's incredible what you, what you can find on online if you have the time to search. Um, but just just having fun with my my Instagram page and and just nice people, really fun, enjoying it. Thank you so much. For <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for my yeah. pleasure. And I, I really I hope to see both of you in Montreal someday, and and we can hang out, and I'll show you the clothes. Yes. Yes, oh. that'd be amazing. <laughs> amazing. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Fatal Fortunes and helping us get the word out about the podcast. If you want to help us further, you can subscribe to us on Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes, shoutouts, stickers, exclusives, and more. For just $3 a month, you can listen to episodes of Fatal Fortunes before nobody else can and get exclusive content that you won't see here. Go take a look over at patreon.com slash fatal fortunes podcast. All one word. Again, that's patreon.com slash fatal fortunes podcast. After four years of working at the district attorney's office, John is over it. He only really went to law school because his mother was still alive and it was her dream for him, but now he's going to do his own thing. He contacts his friend, Michael Berman, who not to be confused with the Michael we talked about earlier, so I'm just going to call this guy Mikey. He meets up with Mikey and for almost a year, they're going back and forth every day about the content like the new magazine they're going to make. What's the content? What's the idea? What's the concept? They're meeting almost every day at Mikey's public relations firm where their future assistant, Rosemarie, works. And she at one point is like, they have to be planning something big because Mikey and John know each other from being a part of the same charity. So for a little bit, people are thinking like, oh, they must just be planning a charity event. But then once he stays for a year, they know it has to be something big. Mikey sells half of his public relations company that he owns to launch George with John in 1995. They launched the magazine on September 8th, 1995, and he remarks to the press, I haven't seen so many of you in one place since I failed my last bar exam, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> um, there's a lot of drama surrounding George's publication, of course. John has proposed to Carolyn in the middle of all this while they're out fishing on vacation in Massachusetts, and she's a nervous wreck that the news is going to get out and ruin the magazine's launch. One night in early September, Carolyn wears her engagement ring out to dinner, and the next day it is zoomed in on in its own little picture on page six. Mikey's pissed. He starts accusing Carolyn of having opened her mouth and let out the secret. 
John's assistant, Rosemary, releases a statement saying that the ring's only a gift and denies the engagement the Friday before the magazine release. This kind of makes Carolyn feel upset. She feels like John has to hide her from the world, and she feels like if John is so comfortable and easy, like, denying their love to the media, then he must be, like, then he maybe he could be denying it to her. So, on the cover of the first George issue is a sexy George Washington, Cindy Crawford. And the magazine's really niche. It's supposed to be for the intersection of entertainment and politics. Sort of like a Rolling Stone or Vanity Fair, but like swinging a little bit more political. But it's not doing well once the press dies down. The goal at the beginning is to make every cover cover be another tableau of George Washington. But then they quickly run out of that idea. You can't make everyone look like George Washington. John wants the magazine to speak for itself and him not having to pimp out himself or trying to sell himself out or sell his family out to sell the paper. And by 1997, Mikey and John are just fighting about this like crazy. So Mikey sells his shares of the publication and his departure leads to an even bigger plummet in sales, basically at the speed of gravity. David Pecker, CEO of Hatchet Phil Apache Magazines, who were in partnership with George, said that the decline was because Kennedy refused to, quote, take risks as an editor despite the fact that he was an extraordinary risk taker in other areas of his life, Pecker said. Quote, he understood that the target audience for George was to be the 18 to 34-year-old demographic, yet he would routinely turn down interviews that would appeal to this age group like Princess Diana or John Gotti Jr. to interview subjects that whose names I cannot pronounce from this quote, and who I didn't know, so I get what (laughs) Mr. Pecker's talking about. During this time, all the designers and the ad pages are asking John to vicariously ask Carolyn to start wearing their clothes, but she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't work for George, and I'm not an advertisement, so the ads start to pull out of the magazine as well. Thoughts? Well... I mean, I think it's an interesting concept, kind of making politics more marketable to a younger audience or people maybe outside of the political, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times kind of sphere, you know. Um, And I actually was watching yesterday um, an interview that John did with Larry King and Larry King was asking him about it. And um, he said that, you know, he kind of wanted to carve his own path as a Kennedy and as the son of a president and, you know, wanted to make something that um, he was passionate about. And, you know, him for him, this was his passion project about, you know, kind of dancing on the line of politics, but not getting too into it. Um, but but I, I do think that in terms of like logistically planning the longevity of this magazine, that's where he kind of failed. And, and I do think that the business stress stressed out his relationship with Carolyn as well. Oh, yeah. In an effort to keep the wedding under the radar, Carolyn actually printed the wedding programs on the copier at the George headquarters one by one because the cardstock kept getting stuck in the paper and she thought if she brought the program to a professional printer that it would get leaked to the press and Cumberland Island would be overrun. And, you know, it's really kind of for the Kennedys, it's a very humble, you know, not oh, super yeah. luxurious place. It's, you know, just, it's very quaint. Um, and the wedding is only 40 people. They have every room at the inn on the island booked, and the rest of their friends are intense with one guest actually wondering if this was a joke. 
away them. I'd be like, if this is Jeff Will, every- swear to God, if you invite me to your wedding and it's in the middle of nowhere with no AC and you tell me to sleep in a tent, I'm going to ask if this is a joke. <laughs> you know, I, I've seen this whole tent thing. It is a thing. Um, like, it's kind of that boho Coachella wedding vibe, you know? Like, yeah. I actually think... Um, did you ever watch Pretty Little Liars? I watched the first show? season, but it's too long. And I don't like this the lady like dating teacher thing. I don't like that. Yeah, that was creepy. Um, well, the woman, Troy and Belisario, who I thought was like the best actress who played Spencer, she actually got married like in a similar kind of setting like this, where there was a lot of like tents and people stayed in the tents and stuff because her and her husband had a thing with tents. But anyways... It is kind of a weird wedding, but but I, I kind of love that it's, you know, kind of off the beaten path. Um, and so they're all at this really humid, sticky chapel and they're waiting for the ceremony to start. John is there, but he keeps ticking by with no Carolyn. And this comes to a point where people start to wonder if she can actually handle the marriage and the wedding. And what really happened to her was that her wedding dress was so small that she couldn't get it on properly and they eventually wrapped her head in a silk scarf and put the dress on and they are able to pull it together and get that dress on get her and to they the actually chapel released... yes get her to the chapel i i kind of do love when there's a delay in a wedding though it kind of increases the drama and the theatrics so they released one picture to the associated press but that was it and this picture is john kissing carolyn's hand outside the chapel it's a really sweet wholesome photo and um they didn't really want to do this but they felt compelled after his cousin patrick drops the news the next day to the public and the two honeymoon in turkey that sounds fun yeah i heard it's interesting and beautiful there you know, I remember in a class at Emerson, I took this crazy class. I'm not going to name drop it or anything, but they were like, you'd have a dope time in Turkey. And I was like, but I can't really handle like seeing other women with less rights than me. And we're on like the same street. Mm-hmm. And they were like, but it's mm-hmm. dope. And I'm like, that doesn't really make me feel better. <laughs> Life for these American royals is not perfection. Carolyn was not prepared for being married to John F. Kennedy Jr., a mix of a rock star and American royalty. She was not ready for the paparazzi randos harassing her. She was just trying to live her life in New York City. But now when she tries to walk her dog Friday, when John's around, the paparazzi's nice to her. When it's just her, they're like, bitch, whore, cunt, in the same way they were doing mm. that to Diana to like get a reaction out of her because that's going to sell a better paper. Yeah. Um, she's just trying to live her life though. And it's putting a lot of strain on her. Um, months before they get married, uh, the national Enquirer actually captures, um, John and Carolyn fighting in Washington square park. And it's an infamous fight. You can watch on YouTube. We'll include it in the show notes, which you should check out at fatalfortunes.com. Um, According to Steve M. Gillen, historian and friend of John's, the reason behind the fight, like many other fights of theirs was because Carolyn would think John was an idiot for letting people walk all over him. Like, referencing back to the Pecker quote, like, John wasn't taking risks as an editor, and Carolyn was probably like, you're letting people walk all over you, you're not, like, putting your own voice onto it, mm-hmm. da 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 And Carolyn's no pushover, she never has been, never will be. And yeah. during these times, like, they have this, like, during the fight, 
he rips the ring off, like the engagement ring off of Carolyn's finger. And they just keep fighting until John sits in the gutter near their apartment where Carolyn tries to like grab Friday back from him. And John yells at her like, you have my ring and now you want my dog too or something to that effect. So John is, he's having a crazy time. I think this a little bit of this is grief. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's crazy that, that this moment was captured, but it's almost kind of in a way, I think kind of fascinating and and cool that, you know, you you i mean even though you know i obviously respect everyone's right to privacy it's interest it's really interesting to see these two you know famous people the son of a president and his wife like fighting and and it's not like you know a hushed tone it's like it's how a lot of couples fight which is you know with some cutting words and you know sort of this aggressive energy between the two and yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that it was captured and people, you know, knew about it and people knew that there were cracks in the marriage. It, it didn't come out after they died. You know, people kind of knew and they speculated. And there's another photo. It's not a video, but there's another photo of them like out to brunch, like sitting outside with the dog and they're fighting. They're like fighting again in public. She throws a piece of bread at him. So there's like an action shot of her like yelling and throwing stuff at him. Like that's just New York to me, though. Like in New York, in every single park in the entire city, there's a couple having a moment. And someday it's going to be so true. That is so true. No, I I totally think that. That's something I noticed when I lived in New York in the summer. You see more couples fighting in parks specifically. It's always parks for me. <laughs> At least I always see them in a park. So when I saw that this was in Washington Square Park, I'm like, yep. Yup. Yep. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Carolyn, a lot of people have said this about, you know, her close friends have said this, that she's really, you know, she's a woman that would stand up to John. She wouldn't just take any of his BS and she would speak her mind. And, you know, that was something that I think really attracted John to Carolyn that was that she was a woman of her own, but also, I mean, you know, living a life that he does that's, you know, political and, you know, part of this prestigious family, like that was also hard because Carolyn, you know, was kind of a wild card at times. Mm-hmm. And she oh, wasn't, yeah. you know, traditional. Like, yeah, she wasn't a pushover. Yeah. And it's such a bummer. Like, there's no video of her, like, ever being, like, like getting back at the paparazzi, you know, or anything. There's right. no, like, never yeah. has even, like, told them to leave her alone. Actually, I think that there's one mm-hmm. video of her, like, saying, can you, like, give me some space, please, as someone is standing in front of, like, the lock to her apartment door. But mm-hmm. ugh, I wish that we knew that side of her. I wish that we knew that sassy, right. confident side of her. So John's more prepared for this public chaotic life because he, you know, kind of grew up with it and he kind of tries to save his relationship and strengthen it by acting kind of as like a bodyguard to Carolyn. And, you know, months after their honeymoon in October, John asked the paparazzi's and press to, you know, respect Carolyn's privacy and, you know, give her some effing space, though they don't listen because money is money and they are getting that shot for the magazine. And, you know, Sometimes when you try to ask the press to back off, it kind of like angers them and makes them more like yeah willing to go places because they know it's going to provoke a reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is taking a really tough toll on Carolyn's mental health. It kind of spirals to the point where she doesn't even want to leave 
her New York flat and, um, you know, sometimes she'll escape to her friends' places to hide out or her friends will visit her. But she doesn't, you know, love the limelight and the attention that the paparazzis give her, unlike, you know, a lot of the influencers of TikTok and Instagram (laughs) that you see in West Hollywood. And she had left her job at Calvin Klein when she married John. So she's literally staying in the Mm. apartment all day. So allegedly, John and Carolyn also fought about the prospect of having kids. John was eager to start a family while Carolyn was reluctant. Uh, John apparently wanted to name his son Flynn. And according to a friend of Carolyn, via a Vanity Fair article by Edward Klein, which I recommend everyone to check out because it's really interesting because there's a lot of insider takes um, about stuff that allegedly happened but the sources and the people that edward klein interviews kind of seems like it's pretty reliable so according to this article by edward klein quote john's life was huge with dozens of friendships and involvements but carolyn couldn't handle that she didn't want to go out she would ditch john's friends not show up for dinner refuse to go to people's houses or events she burned a lot of bridges end quote Carolyn was overwhelmed by this world she was living in, you know, where everyone is kind of glaring at you when they're waiting for you to crack. They're waiting, you know, for you to be provoked and have a reaction. And and she couldn't really comprehend and she couldn't really comprehend raising a child in this world that she was you know, living in and being kind of suffocated by, you know. So also from this Vanity Fair article, there was an alleged incident of John coming home to Carolyn snorting cocaine with, quote, and I love this, a gaggle of gay fashionistas. (laughs) John screamed, you're a cokehead. And, you know, there are these allegations that there was some drug use on Carolyn's part. Um, And, you know, Drugs aside, there's just kind of this volatile nature to their relationships on both sides. And, you know, they just wanted different things out of life, I think. Um, And, you know, I think Carolyn, she wanted to kind of live freely and Mm -hmm. kind of wanted to explore life. She's a little bit younger than John, you know, by a few years. Um, Yeah. And despite their marriage being on the rocks, even up until their death, you know, it's on the rocks. But they, they did really love each other. And during their marriage, they often sought, um, you know, comfort and solidarity. And they spent a lot of time with their best friends, Prince Anthony Reswell, a Polish prince, and John's first cousin, and Anthony's wife, Carol Reswell. And if you want to know more about them, go to our Patreon, because they will be in the episode about the rest of John and Carolyn's family. Yep. (laughs) so there's a bunch of allegations of infidelity in addition to the drug use that we need to get into and the allegations are that john was sleeping around with other girls and that carolyn was reconnecting with former flame that we mentioned earlier in the episode michael bergen according to klein's vanity fair article john and carolyn often fought about their like their suspicions of each other's infidelity Carolyn would apparently use the possibility of an affair with Bergen as like leverage to taunt John. And there was one story where um, one night after John comes home and like Carolyn is apparently really honest this whole time that she's seeing Bergen, but she's not saying that they're having an affair. So one night John goes over 
to his house and he rings the doorbell. He says, NYPD, shocked, Bergen lets whoever on, is on the other side in and JFK Jr. sucker punches him in the face for whatever is going on with Carolyn. Again, according to Klein's Vanity Fair article, John is hurt by Carolyn's actions and he can't help but think that their marriage is doomed for divorce. The couple start attending therapy, but um, when the therapist asks about Carolyn's drug abuse, she storms out and sleeps at their Tribeca flats, like spare room, and John, like where all the exercise equipment is stored, and John moves out of their Tribeca place to the Stanhope Hotel on the Upper East Side. Do you want to say this okay. first paragraph about the crash? Yeah. And then do you want to go kind of like into everything and then I can go, I can start like while waiting, Carolyn called her best friend, Carol, or I can yeah. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Yeah. Okay, cool. So in 1998, John fulfilled his childhood dream. And so in 1988, 1998. Wait, yeah. In 1998, John fulfills his childhood dream and becomes a licensed pilot. He loved to fly planes, you know, toy planes with his dad as a kid and, you know, go on planes on. Wait, let me do it again. In 1998, John fulfilled his childhood dream and becomes a licensed pilot. He loved to fly planes. Ugh. In 1998, John fulfills his childhood dream and becomes a licensed pilot. As a kid, he loved to fly on planes with his dad, and he soon purchases a little six-seat Piper Saratoga plane on his own, and he had promised Jackie that he would never fly, especially in light of what happened to his stepbrother, Alexander Onassis. Who died in a plane that he wasn't actually piloting himself, but nonetheless... Um, in the summer of 1999, John and Carolyn and their besties, Carol and Anthony, are staying in their nice summer home in Martha's Vineyard. During this time, Anthony is dying of cancer. John and Carolyn are trying to keep it together, but they just started marriage counseling and things are strained for them. A lot's going on. They're planning to go to Rory Kennedy's wedding, but Carolyn doesn't want to go because of the strain. And John says that if she doesn't, people will talk, which is going to make the strain worse. Her sister said that she needs a ride to Martha's Vineyard anyway before they go to the wedding in Hyannis. Even Rose Marie says, Carolyn, get on the fucking plane. That same evening, John and his sister-in-law... That same evening, John and his sister-in-law, Lauren, meet Carolyn at a small New Jersey airport. Hmm... That same evening, John and his sister-in-law, Lauren, meet Carolyn at a small New Jersey airport to fly John's Piper Saratoga. John and Lauren traveled together to the airport and got stuck in Manhattan traffic. They had planned to leave around 5 p.m. with plenty of daylight. While waiting, Carolyn called her best friend, Carol Radswell, who we mentioned, from the plane saying that they'll be back soon. And in her book, What Remains, Carol remarked that she didn't say, I love you at the end of this call. She just hung up and she kind of, you know, regrets it. Wait, let me do it again. Carol, um, Carol remarks in her book, What Remains, that she didn't tell Carolyn, I love you at the end of this call. She just hung up. And that's also another theme in Rosemarie's book that 
the last time you ever talk to someone is just so unremarkable sometimes. And sometimes you forget to say, I love you, or you don't think you need to say it because, you know, it's like, it's not the last time, you know, you don't know it's the last time. They're taking a like half hour flight to you. Why say I love yeah, you? You're going to send them in a sack. Mm-hmm. So later that night at 8.38 p.m. with John as the pilot, they take off. John soon encounters a coastal cloudy haze that causes his orientation to falter. And this is, you know, when they're kind of hovering above the Massachusetts coastal area um, by the sea. And for three minutes, without knowing, their plane was headed diagonally downwards toward the ocean because, you know, his vision of the land in front of him is is pretty clouded. And, you know, as that plane's heading down, it's it's heading for the ocean and the plane crashed and the three perished. It only took five minutes from... Uh, it only took five minutes from when they couldn't see the coast anymore to the crash. Which is so crazy because JFK Jr., he was only licensed to fly with, like, visual, like... I don't know. I don't know how they talk about it in pilot life, but with like, like he was only able. <sighs> John was only able and licensed to fly with like visual flight stuff as opposed to with his instruments. So he probably didn't even know what the instruments on the plane were saying. And because they're in like pitch darkness and haze and they can't see the lights of like Providence yeah. or the Cape anymore. Like. He like wasn't flying in the yeah. proper conditions at all. Yeah, and I imagine, I mean, that sounds like a really difficult environment to be flying in, especially as a, you know, not super, super experienced pilot. Um, And, you know, they, he he allegedly, like, you know, was kind of taught by his pilot a little bit about kind of navigating, scaling your plane or balancing the plane in the right sort of orientation. But, you know, I mean, there's only so much that, some flight classes can do, um, you know, you really have to have that experience, but yeah. So anyways, um, on July 21st at 10 30 AM, you know, after days of their bodies being missing, you know, people not knowing what happened to them, Navy divers recover the bodies of John, who's 38, Carolyn 33 and her sister, Lauren 34. This is in the seas southwest of Martha's Vineyard today. They were found 116 feet below water, 7.5 miles off the vineyard's shores. And this is a really tragic part, and this leads into Carol Radswell's book. But three weeks later, JFK Jr.'s cousin and, you know, their best friend, Anthony Radswell, dies of cancer with his wife, Carol, by his side. Another thing we didn't mention about the crash, I don't know, it's not too morbid, but they find John, like, still strapped to his seat and, like, the two girls, like, mm. a little bit farther away from it. And I looked up Piper Saratogas, and the, they only have seatbelts in the front, which I think is kind of crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And That's also, crazy. apparently, when you hit the water at that kind of velocity and that kind of speed, it doesn't feel like water. It feels like concrete. So at least we know they didn't suffer. At least they didn't like pop back out from the water and get eaten by sharks or something. Is that a silver lining? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty immediate um, when it happened. And 
But can yeah, you just imagine but, like the three minutes? Like I, Carol talks about it in the book, so I guess it's a good segue. But like, can you imagine what they're thinking in like those three minutes of panic? Like when you're in the air like that, your gravity is just so messed up that you don't know like like up could feel like completely upside down. You could feel like totally straight up and be totally different way. Yeah, well, in Carol Radswell's memoir, What Remains, she actually talks about this a little bit. And she says that, you know, based on the reports that she's read and, you know, what the experts say that, you know, for these like three minutes that they were heading down, uh, they didn't even know it, you know, Um, and it wasn't probably until the last 30 seconds, 30, 40 seconds that they were able to kind of comprehend that, you know, they were headed toward the ocean. Um, which I think is really, really frightening and crazy. Um, yeah, so Carol Radziwill, who we mentioned, you know, best friend to Carolyn and John, and she, without going too much into her, we'll talk more about her in the Patreon, uh, but she uh, met her husband, Anthony, at ABC News. They both work there together, and Anthony is John's cousin uh, from his mom's side, uh anthony's mother lee is jackie o's sister uh lee radswell and um yeah so they were just you know best friends and in her memoir what remains she talks about their relationship she talks about the plane crash and you know she has a lot of heavy moments because she loses her best friends and also her her lover anthony died of cancer three weeks after john and carolyn died this is one of my favorite moments from the book or favorite quotes. Um, she says that most people think fortune is something good to have fortune, to be fortunate, a word that implies advantage like luck. We call it fate when there is no logical path from then to now. When the man who loves to fly dies in a plane crash, we shake our heads. It's fate. We, we say, what do we think about this quote? Carol just knows us. I think part yeah. of why we started this podcast was because we wanted to talk about things that just seem like like fortune. Like, of course, the guy who loves to fly is going to get proverbially too close to the sun and fall that way. Or the guy who loves fame will get too close to, I don't know, his own Dorian Gray-esque portrait and decay that way. So I, I think Carol understands us. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, you know, there's always going to be conspiracy theories and people looking for the answers and the reasons why things happened. And I think her book is kind of just a sobering reminder that things happen just because they happen. You know, sometimes there is no reason. Sometimes it just it just happens, you know, and these moments that are really tragic and fatal, they can, you know, just come out of left field and really disrupt what we think of life as we know it today. Yeah. Well, there's some salacious rumors that we still need to get into. And I think that we should end this on a lighthearted note because I think that John would want us all to move on, smile a little bit. Um, and the first quirky one, you know, quirky, crazy, funny one is that QAnon thinks JFK Jr. is still alive. Um, it's pretty, it's certain that this mar- man perished at the Atlantic Ocean off the co- coast of Martha's Vineyard. However, yeah. 
There are some crazies on the internet and in Congress who yeah. actually believe that John never died in the plane crash. There is a school of thought that he is alive, hiding in Pennsylvania, and has been for two decades and is a huge Trump supporter. The delusion goes so far that they thought that John was going to come out of hiding in July 4th, Independence Day 2020, on stage with Trump and announced that he was going to be the running mate of the former president of the United States. And seriously, guys, look it up. They've made t-shirts on Amazon because when I went to do more research on this, maybe find some books, why am I scrolling down and seeing a bunch of shirts that say Trump Jr.? I mean, not Trump Jr. <laughs> Trump JFK Jr. 2020. That was crazy. Um, yeah. They even have pinned an yeah. exact person who's I'm not going to name drop because it's not JFK Jr., but a guy living in Pittsburgh. They have actually pinpointed him and thinking that he's dropping this guy. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's crazy. I was actually, you know, doing this podcast. I've been doing a little guerrilla investigating by joining some Facebook groups on, you know, related to the people that we're discussing. And I joined one that I thought was going to be a JFK Jr. fan <laughs> page, but it turned out to be, I actually, I don't know if I was actually accepted in it, but one of the questions was like, do you support Donald Trump? And I'm like, why, why is that like a question to find out about JFK Jr.? And then I found out this whole conspiracy theory and, and I just don't get it. And, and I don't think these people knew John because I, I he would no way run with Trump. Like he's not, he's a Democrat, <laughs> he's a Democrat. On principle, through and through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, come on guys. Come on. And another crossover that we love, love, love that'll make more sense someday, is that JFK met Princess Diana. In 1995, Diana and John pulled off the impossible when they met in New York undercover. John was hoping to convince Diana to be on the cover of George now that she and Prince Charles had called it quits on their marriage. They agreed to meet at the Carlisle Hotel, but how are they going to meet without being noticed? They're the most famous people in the whole world. The end plan was simple. They decided JFK and Diana should walk in through the front door. Their logic was, if the press found out about the meeting, which of course they would, they would think that they would want to use the less visible side door. And because of this, the paparazzi were actually waiting for them at the side door, so they just boldly walked through the front door. They just waltzed right in and weren't noticed, and there's wow. not a single picture of the event to this day. And she said no to being on the cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of love this. I mean, it's so interesting and it's really kind of fascinating when two such icons. intriguing uh, yeah, icons sort of c cross paths like this. It's really quite something, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Imagine seeing that walking down the street. Vomit. I'd vomit. <laughs> <laughs> I know you would. That's so crazy. I know you would, Al. I wouldn't, but, like, I know you would. <laughs> no, I would, too. I would, too. I mean, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably, like, faint, but, yeah. Um, well, actually, I mean, one thing I just wanted to kind of quickly go back to about the what remains is this other quote that I think is kind of a good place to leave, but Carol says, um, you go through what remains, and there isn't a lot that is meaningful except for your memories, um, and... I don't know. I mean, looking back on the legacy and the life of John and Carolyn, I, I think that they did kind of 
live life to the fullest, even though we talked about kind of the rocky nature of their marriage. Sometimes, you know, they, they just seemed like they were, they were living life so vivaciously. Um, And I got that really when I was reading Carol's book that, you know, and also the four of them, you know, John, Carol, or John and Carolyn, Anthony and Carol, they were just like the best of friends. And when Anthony was dying, like, Carolyn and John were like really, really there for them. Like they, this was like a write or die, like level of friendship. And, and yeah, I mean, I think Carolyn and John for being, you know, in such a public life, they they were really, it seems like genuine people who, you know, really cared about the people that were close to them and more down to earth than we think. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't seem as down to earth because we don't let them be down to earth. Right. Yeah. And that's why anyone watching this episode, I recommend that you read What Remains by Carol Radswell and, you know, the other sources that we're going to mention um, or that we have mentioned, because I think it's important to kind of step behind the public perceptions of people that kind of, you know, are remembered for more salacious or, you know, insane moments or their death, you know, like they're they're more than just those crazy times. Yes, and for a full list of sources, please check out our show notes that will be up on the blog the same day that this comes out, fatalfortunes.com. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Fatal Fortunes. I've been Al. I've been Will. On Tuesdays, we talk ghosts. See you next time. Make sure to follow us wherever you're listening. We're available pretty much anywhere that you can listen to podcasts. And if we're not maybe write us and we'll try to get on there. Um, But you can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube at fatal fortunes. And we're gonna, I swear we're gonna, we haven't yet, but we're gonna post on TikTok (laughs) at fatal underscore fortune. So please be the first one to like and comment those fun little videos that we're having. And um, yeah, thank you guys so much. See you next time. Yay. Yay.